Hello and welcome to Business Line podcast. This conversation you're about to hear is a part of Business Line Stable Talk series. Conversations with leaders on their life and times and their businesses. In this episode, Vinay Kamath, Senior Associate Editor, Business Line Chennai, and Thomas K. Thomas, Chief of Bureau, Business Line Mumbai, speak to Anish Shah, the MD of Mahindra Group. The Mumbai-born and bred Shah took over as the chief of the $22 billion Mahindra Group this November. They chat about his move to India from the US after 16 years, his seamless academic journey from an MBA from IIM Ahmedabad, PhD in Carnegie Mellon, and switch tracks to talk about the pandemic impact on the group's auto business, the roadmap for the company's future, and discuss his interests beyond the corporate life. Thank you for tuning in. Let's dive right in over to Vinay Kamath. start by asking you a little bit about yourself before we go on to the tougher business questions so as as indicated to you it's a free wheeling conversation a bit of your life uh, what makes anish artic and also about the business seven and business about your life and times um, so let me ask you so you're a bombay lad right right through right you school and uh, how how has it been growing up in bombay so growing up in bombay was a lot of fun i grew up in bandra and juhu and uh, at that time both were wide open spaces a uh, lot less congested than the city is right now and bombay gave a lot of freedom because for a young child growing up safety factor was very high and uh, in high school and in college at sidham uh, there were just lots of things that, uh, as a, a teenager one could do and it was a lot of fun right so and then from sidenham you went on to ima and uh, did you actually decide your life trajectory from there or did you take things in your stride as they came along so i do tend to make a lot of decisions from the heart at the same time i do tend to plan as well which is a dichotomy but it works or at least it has worked uh, i had made the decision to go to iim or at least had the desire to go to iim uh, well before i went there because um, i loved the campus my cousin and her fiance at that time uh, were on campus in 1985 which was 5 years before i went there and uh, i'd want to visit them and i just absolutely loved the campus uh, there is a history as well because my father and mother were from iim ahmedabad my father was the first batch and my mother was in the second batch uh, so i'm sure that may have had some influence somewhere but uh, i think the driving force also was just the campus and if well, this was a great place so uh, there was very much a desire to go there thankfully that worked out and uh, i felt i wanted to learn a lot more about the world and therefore early on i had made a choice that i would look for opportunities Uh, to go to the US, get a broader exposure, and uh, then come back to India. Uh, so that was something very much in mind. Coming back to India took a little longer than what I had initially planned for, but uh, on balance, I think all of that worked out very well. So that was 1966. Was that the first batch? Uh, was first batch graduated in 1966? You're absolutely right. 64 was. uh when the first batch started which was even before the campus was in place so that must have been ck pralad's batch right that must have been a classmate of this great pralad this great 
Right, and uh, maybe uh, so. Uh, what was what did your dad do? Was he in the corporate sector, or and your mom were they both in the corporate sector? So my father was in the corporate sector. Uh, he was uh, one of the senior leaders at Pfizer, and then played a key role to develop the Indian pharma industry. Uh, so he was the head of the Indian Pharma Association, founded that, and uh, spent a lot of time uh, working with the Indian pharma. Right. And uh, my mother was uh, an entrepreneur. Uh, and well, before the time when entrepreneurship gains such huge rewards as they are today, but uh, she set up her own company, um, making uh, paperboard cartons and printing and packaging uh, for Colgate and Sipagaygi and various other multinational players at that time. So the toothbrush, toothpaste cartons, etc., were uh, made by her company. Okay, I wonder if you must have been one of the few women in, at IMA at that time. Uh, there were two women in her batch, so she was one of the two. So yes, it was a very small group. Right. So Anish, you went on to do your PhD in the in the US. I mean, um, so did, were you looking to venture to career in academics because going getting into getting into a PhD is a very very tough call. So I was very clear that I wanted to be in the corporate world. Uh, at the same time, I felt having a depth in finance was essential and would help a lot in the career. And therefore, post MBA, uh, I was the youngest in my class and um, had gone directly from BCom as well. So I felt that I had a little bit of time that I could invest and gain that education with a much deeper knowledge of finance and that would help me a lot as it turns out um, in addition to finance uh, one of my advisors who was the ex-president of Carnegie Mellon wanted to focus on corporate governance and uh, that was a very useful education in corporate governance uh, in a space which again at that point did not have a lot of mention uh, in the corporate world globally but today has become very important and um, Due to a variety of factors, and I would look at luck as one of the big factors there, I could graduate from a PhD in less than three years, uh, which helped getting back to the corporate world faster. Right. So that's amazing because uh, so much, so many, so many Indian diaspora are there in the in the US, and that didn't influence you to stay back, and you chose to come back. That's especially. Uh, well, I was very clear that our personal preference was to live in India, and that was more because of just personal comfort um, and we were also very clear that we would not compromise uh, from a career standpoint so if a career opportunity was better in the us then i would take that and which is why i was there for a very long time and uh, then as i came into ge india to run ge capital here uh, it was a great opportunity it was a business that had gone through a very tough time and uh, a number of things had to be done to turn it around, including uh, working with the SPI card joint venture and uh, setting that on the right path. And that was a very fulfilling experience. And uh, that then gave me the opportunity to come to Mahindra, which is just a fantastic group. And uh, that then dovetailed very well with both personal and professional preferences. And uh, therefore, you know, we got a chance to stay back in Mumbai. Uh, essentially, we came back to Mumbai after 21 years. And it's a very good. Okay, over 21 years in the US? Uh, 16 in the US and 5 in Gurgaon. Okay, 
right, right. Okay, uh, Thomas, go ahead. Yeah, Anish, uh, I was just reading about how you met Anand the first time and how your uh, uh, your colleague in Bain Capital sort of set up the first meeting. So could you talk a little bit about that first meeting with Anand then? I mean, what kind of uh, sort of hooked you on to joining Mahindra? So essentially you came from GE and you had a banking and a financial background. What kind of convinced you that Mahindra is where your future will be? So in addition to a colleague, uh, Ranjan was uh, a mentor and uh, he was uh, my boss at Bain as well. He was a partner there when I had joined Bain for a few years in the US. Um, and uh, I valued his judgment a lot. So that definitely played a role. And uh, Anand is an absolutely remarkable person. So the first meeting itself was, you know, I was very clear that uh, this is a person I'd love to work with and uh, learn a lot. So that was uh, probably the single largest factor. Uh, it did take some time though, because I had always worked with US companies. And for me, culture was very important. Uh, people I worked with, the level of openness and transparency, the focus on diversity, all of those things were very important factors. And uh, what I saw in the Mahindra group was, that uh, it was one that really embodied all those factors, which made it much easier to be able to make that decision. It was a very tough decision at that point in time because this was well before the whole G implosion. And at that point, G was doing very well. There were a number of opportunities around the world as well. And uh, in hindsight, it probably would have been a very easy call. At that time, it wasn't. Uh, but it was really the attraction of the Mahindra group, what it brought as a culture, as um, the openness, the diversity, the transparency, uh, and uh, learning from one, which were all factors that got me in here. So when we spoke last time in April, uh, Anish, we, uh, you were, uh, we had spoken about how you got to know that you would become the chairman of, uh, the first professional chairman of Mahindra group. And you went through an entire selection process as, as would anybody else. Uh, just uh, sorry to interrupt, just to clarify, Anand continues to be chairman. Uh, my role is managing director and CEO of the Mahindra group. Uh, just so that, uh, you know, there is clarity for uh, the readers and the viewers. Right. So the, the, so, so the first professional executive to manage the entire group. Uh, yes. So, so when you came in from, from your financial background and from GE, uh, you obviously wouldn't have thought that you would reach this place or did you sort of work towards this this uh, kind of a role that you have today? See, the one thing I had been, uh, I had grown up with in GE was keep your head down and deliver results. If you do that, your career will be planned for you. Uh, before that, I had heard a lot of people say you have to plan your career, you have to keep asking for what next, etc. Uh, but the journey at G was amazing on that front. Uh, every time, just before I thought I was fully comfortable in a role, uh, just when I was getting there, I was tapped on the shoulder and told, go and do something else. And that happened so many times that you just got comfortable into this thing of, I'm just going to deliver results, do what I can do, and I'll be taken care of. Uh, so when I joined the Mahindra group, at that point, it was not with any specific intention to say, here's a role I have to get. 
Anand that brought me into a very senior role, one that uh, had an impact across all our group companies. And I was much younger than many of the other leaders in the group at that point in time. And I came in with the mindset that I'm coming here because I'm happy being here and I can contribute here for the next 20 years. Uh, even if it is in the same role, because it was a very meaningful role at that point. Um, and that was the mindset. So, no, there wasn't a specific plan to say that here's a role to get next. Uh, and as it turned out, again, I kept my head down, did what I had to do, and was again tapped on the shoulder and said, you should do something else now. <laughs> so, Anish, last time we spoke, uh, you gave us an overview of how you are planning to uh, take the, the group forward. And you talked about core areas, which is auto, farm, Mahindra Finance, Tech Mahindra, and you talked about the 10 growth gems. And then, of course, you gave us a insight into your strategy on new age platforms. Uh, just to start off on the business side of this conversation, uh, Mahindra Group on the auto side is now trying to define the whole concept of SUV, right? I mean, you, you are trying to say that what is an authentic SUV and therefore cater to that kind of a market. Uh, whereas some of your rivals are trying to play both sides. One is, uh, which is the compact SUV, the crossover SUV, uh, and then of course the core uh, SUV market. How confident are you that you know customers will start understanding this differentiation that you are trying to create in the market? So first, as we think about authentic SUVs, our definition actually compasses 70% of the market. So it's not a small niche. It's also an area of the market that is growing much faster because consumers want that in an SUV. They want the feeling of safety, of comfort, of being able to sit at a higher point and, in a sense, survey the road a much better. So all of those are factors that go into an authentic SUV. The ability to be able to go off-road if you want to, the ability to have a very sophisticated car for a city if you want to. Um, so the first point is it's a large part of the SUV market. Uh, and we've had a strength in this space in the past. We've had various successes. And as we focused on it more, even as you, as you look at the last 18 months, we had four blockbuster launches. The 300, the Bolero Neo, Thar, and the XCV 700. And we have a fifth one that's coming up soon, which is a new Scorpio. And uh, there again, based on the input we've got from our dealers, uh, they're looking forward to a huge success. So if we can five blockbuster launches in a row, that positions us extremely well in this space and uh, will allow us to regain our number one position. So did you have this, uh, did you expect that kind of a booking for your XUV 700? I mean, was that a complete surprise or? So three months prior to that, yes, it would have been a complete surprise. But at the time of launch, which was on August 15th, uh, we had a session with dealers and auto journalists where we had taken them to a new test track, uh, which is near Chennai, in fact. Uh, and the feedback from them was amazing. Uh, and based on that feedback, we suddenly got a lot more confidence that look, this is going to be one that really shakes things up. And uh, at that point in time, we knew that we were onto a winner, uh, which then played out as the bookings came in. Right. Though there have been some 
bad runs in the basket, right? I mean, like I don't think the Marazzo did as well as he thought it would, or the KUV hundred haven't done as well, right? Yes, that is exactly right, and that has resulted in us agree uh, deciding to focus on our core, uh, which is the authentic SUVs. So the seventy percent of the market that we play in does encompass the three double O, the uh, Polaro Neo, the Scorpio, the XUV seven double O R, etc. Uh, but the Marazzo as an MPV uh, and the KUV as a compact SUV, we've never had the strength for that. Uh, and we did not have a differentiating factor, uh, which we do in our core authentic SUVs. So we've decided that that's not a segment we're going to play in as we go in the future. Right. And I think that relaunch Thar is doing extremely well as too. That is doing extremely well. And uh, that also surprised us, in fact, because the level of demand was far higher than what we had expected. And the customer base is also very different uh, in a sense because it's a two-door vehicle. And uh, we would have expected certain adventure enthusiasts, etc., to take the two-door vehicle. But this has had a much broader mass appeal. And uh, that's something that, again, is a testament to the iconic brand. So it's one that uh, has put us back on the journey, uh, which then has allowed us to do things in a much bolder manner for other launches as we look forward. Right. Thomas, go ahead. Yeah, Anish, the other thing uh, which uh, Mahindra has been talking about is uh, the strategy on the EV space. So you committed about 3000 crore uh, to develop a new platform. So every brand uh, in the world and India is now talking about this, this uh, getting into the EV space. Uh, how will you differentiate yourself in this clutter of uh, all these conversations that is happening in the in the electric vehicle space. So first, I want to start with saying that EV is not just about four four wheelers. Uh, three wheelers is a huge opportunity for EV, and uh, we are by far the leader there. We have greater than a sixty percent market share, and uh, while we have an ICE portfolio in three wheelers as well, that is very quickly being cannibalized by EV. So the adoption there is far greater than what we see on the four wheeler side. Why? Because there are three things that drive adoption. Cost of ownership, range anxiety, and infrastructure. And all three have been met for three-wheelers. So we're going to see that market really start taking off in a much bigger way for EV. Now okay. when we get to the four-wheeler side, uh, we are not at the same cost of ownership today. There are still concerns around infrastructure because battery swapping is much tougher for four-wheelers than it is for three-wheelers. And Therefore, that will take a little more time to play out. Uh, the analogy I'd give is we are actually in a test match and we completed just the five or, first five or 10 hours. Right? This is not a T20 with 10 hours gone. This is a test match with the first 10 hours done. Um, so that, as it plays out, uh, will result in various winners and, and potentially losers over time. But the key differentiating factor for us, again, is going to be the form factor which is the authentic SUV. So we're going to focus on our core. Uh, in many ways, you could look at EV as another powertrain. So when you look at diesel versus gasoline, um, yes, there is a technology that goes into the powertrains for diesel and gasoline that is different. The engines are different. Uh, but the performance of the car has to live up to it. Uh, and that performance is not only the acceleration or the mileage. The performance also is around all the aspects of the car and including in the consumer's mind design of the car. So 
as we can develop uh, EVs of a very high quality, uh, it will have to be with the backdrop of the design, with the backdrop of everything else at a Mahindra SUV can offer a country. Right, but this, even with these challenges, uh, you said it's it's the beginning of a, of the test match. You still confident of uh, you know reaching about twenty percent of your total UV volume sales from EV? If I'm correct, uh, of the thirteen new launches, eight uh, is is in the electric space by twenty twenty seven, right? I mean, so that plan that's, is that's right. So by twenty seven, we do expect twenty percent of our new volumes in EV, and uh, our sense is that it will uh, exponentially start picking up from there and go higher as we go forward. So there is a plan to move a number of our models into the EV space and uh, thereby continue our market leadership in core SUV as we go to electric vehicles as well. How do you see, uh, you know, when people like, uh, you know, Elon Musk is, uh, you know, eager to enter India and they're asking for, uh, you know, duty cuts, import duty cuts. Uh, do you think that's a fair ask or do you think that, you know, uh, you know, the current regime is pretty much quite fair. I think there has to be a level playing field for everyone. And as you look at duties within India, uh, they have been higher for cars for a good reason. Uh, so as we look at any imports coming in, the question is how does it stack up with the duty structure in India? As we think about any exports that we make to countries uh, around the world, what is the duty that they charge on those? That's different from what they charge for their domestic producers. So right. I think all of those factors need to be looked at uh, before we make a decision. And in the context of make in India, uh, we would encourage folks to come in into India and set up manufacturing capabilities. We have not shied away from foreign competition. In fact, there has been very strong foreign competition for the last 20 years. And uh, right. that's something that helps the industry. It helps us grow. It helps us learn more. Uh, so we welcome that, uh, but it's good to have the government focus on Make in India. That is important for us. Why would we want to buy vehicles that are made in China, for example, or any other country? Uh, we have the capabilities in India. We can design world-class cars in India now. If you look at the XV700 and put that against any car in this segment globally, uh, it will stand up extremely well uh, against all of those. So. We have the ability to do that here domestically. And therefore, let's welcome the foreign competition. Let's have them make cars in India. Uh, let's make our industry better that way and let's compete with that. You expect the EV ecosystem to develop rapidly from now on in terms of battery swapping, battery charging stations. And do you think there's an impetus for that? Uh, I think that it will still take some time uh, because for the infrastructure to develop, there need to be more cars on the road, and for more cars on the road, there needs to be an infrastructure. So that itself will have some constructive tension as it goes forward. Uh, battery swapping for four vehicles uh, for four wheelers is going to be a very difficult task. Uh, that's something that has been tried by various folks in the past. Uh, we will have to look at uh, fast charging as options and uh, setting up infrastructure in a broader way. But it will go a bit slower up to a point. Then once it hits an inflection, it will start moving much faster from there. Uh, that said, even if we think about 20% by 2027, uh, that's not too far off. That's a pretty substantial number. And uh, that will start giving the level of scale required for it to hit that inflection point soon after that. Right. 
Right. Thanks. Anish, uh, what's the update on the Sangyong uh, thing? I mean, uh, is the deal with Edison happening or? Uh... Uh, so there, Edison has put in a bid. The court uh, has outlined a certain set of processes around that, and uh, the process is moving forward as far as we understand. Uh, the court is driving it; we are not. Uh, so, therefore, on that, we will hear more as time goes on. So, in a, will this be the last sort of your legacy troubled issue that you'll you'll have to deal with? I mean, most of the other uh, uh, ventures you probably exited by now, right? Yes, we have, and even here, uh, from our standpoint, uh, it does not impact us anymore because all the write-offs that we've had to take, uh, we've taken already, and uh, we do not control the company anymore. The court controls the company as it goes forward. So. Uh, from our standpoint, this is really moving forward with the court process. Right. right, right. Uh, Anish, let me then just go to your um, your digital strategy. I mean, uh, you you've been a digital evangelist even in your earlier avatar with uh, with Mahindra Group. Uh, you've worked with how AI and IoT can be uh, you know utilized across the group. You've sent, set up a center of digital excellence. Uh, <coughs> With basically aimed at training digital future leaders, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, what this digital excellence center is doing, and uh, what's your? How do you see the entire digital piece for Mahindra Group? The digital piece is a very important piece for us, and you're right that we started the journey many years ago, uh, because it really impacts how the consumer sees the product, the company, and their experience. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is that consumer expectations have gone up a lot in terms of making life easier for them. And therefore, the head start we had in digital has helped us because the primary objective is to deliver an outstanding experience for the consumer where they can access any product or service in any manner they want. If they want to come in and do it in person, that's fine. If they want to do it on phone, there's a good support. And in many cases, more so over the last couple of years, if they want to do it electronically, either on their phone or online, uh, there's a very simple experience that's laid out for them. Uh, so that's one aspect of its customer experience. Second is digital that drives technology and drives uh, improvements in products, creates a better product, at the same time reduces cost. So there are various initiatives that have been started, have some have completed, some are still ongoing, uh, that will result in better products in, in lower costs as well. And uh, especially in an era of uh, material costs rising significantly, lower costs also help the consumer in terms of not having the car prices go up as much or the tractor prices go up as much. So you have found this digital frame co. Uh, what, what, what is it that aimed at? What, what will come out of this uh, platform? Uh, so these are various new age digital platforms. And if we look back over the last few years, the first one actually was uh, a retail uh, business, which was for mothers and, and young children called Mom and Me, which we ended up merging with First Cry and really created the first digital platform. The approach we took there was we went into a minority stake at that point at a 45%, a large minority shareholder, but we let the entrepreneur run with it. Um, and that resulted in a huge success where other investors came in. We got, got diluted further. But the value creation was enormous because 
uh, first try is valued at 1.7 billion in its last round and it's obviously higher today since then uh, post that we had a company called smartshift which we had set up as a startup at the mahindra group that merged with porter uh, smartshift and porter were number 2 and number 1 in its industry uh, which is essentially around uh, transportation of goods intra city and uh, creating a platform for that porter in its latest round is now valued at 3750 crores uh, so again it's a significant value creation for the group we continue to be the largest shareholder there and there are multiple areas where there are huge strengths in the group so if we look at smes and receivables uh, the mahindra group today buys 30000 crores from smes and from auto component makers and tractor component makers and that is financed today uh, some of it is done by mahindra finance some of it is done by other players so we're looking at setting up an sme receivables platform uh, which has a great starting point similarly on agritech uh, we work very closely with farmers and a number of startups in the agritech space uh, on a large variety of areas and taking that and putting that together as an agritech platform uh, insurance is a third area and there are a few others like that where we have enormous strengths within our group businesses and a very strong and trusted brand with our consumers so we're putting that together to say we will build new age digital platforms we will have entrepreneurs come in run with it uh, we will not control it and uh, we will bring in outside investors to validate the concept and uh, therefore let the company go ahead and create value right So, uh, Arish, you identified about ten growth drivers for your for your business units across, you know, mobility, clean tech, uh, infrastructure, technology, rural and financial services, uh, and you're looking at getting an eighteen percent return on equity for all of them. Uh, could you share some insights on how you plan to grow this, grow these businesses to to increase their yeah. overall yeah. revenue so contribution? Arish, we've set targets for both growth and ROI. So while we started with ROE, while we had some of the challenges with our international subsidies, we then added a growth target, uh, which is a 15 to 20 percent growth. For our growth gems, we went further and said, as a starting point, we want each one of them to reach a billion dollar market. And if we can do that for these growth gems, and that creates a lot of value for our shareholders, and then we can take it to the next level from there. So three of our growth gems are listed entities: logistics, holidays, and life spaces. All three have now started demonstrating significant growth um and they're taking bold steps and that's reflected in their increase in market cap uh so they're well on their path to a billion dollars in fact a couple of them are starting to get very close to it now uh, but that's really not going to be the end target for them they will be a higher target as soon as they reach that right uh, and then we've got other entities where uh, the potential for value creation again is very high and uh, there we're going to look at growing the business over the next couple of years or 3 to 5 years in some cases and preparing it for an ipo and uh, and generating returns from an ipo in that space uh, so excelo is one that's likely to be first to ipo rural housing finance would be another one and then we will have the others as well follow uh, so that's really our approach in some of these cases we would also look for uh, private equity firms to come in and unlock some value and help us drive growth as well so as and where it makes sense that's part of the value creation journey for us as well right right um you also outlined um, 
about four top priorities for the group, you know, which will ensure proper capital allocation across group companies. So there's a reason telling your group, group companies that fresh investment will be aimed only at entities that will ensure the growth that you envisage for them. So it's important to have that fiscal discipline. As a group, we've had that for many, many years. And as I've indicated earlier in, in a few sessions, we've been the best performing stock in the Nifty 2002 to 2018. And over a 17-year period, it's not easy to do that without fiscal discipline. So we're just going back to the fiscal discipline we had before to say that, yes, we are going to be bold in terms of growth. We are going to set a hurdle for ROE. And we are going to take tough calls where required. Now, the good news is taking all the tough calls we had to, and the businesses we have now are growing extremely well. Um, so that momentum is there, and that momentum should be able to allow us to deliver the commitments that we are talking about here. Right. Thomas, Anish, so uh, you've uh, laid out 17,000 crore capex over the next three years. Uh, in this conversation, you mentioned about unlocking value across different businesses. Would you have a lot of a, a sort of a ballpark idea of what's the kind of fund funds that you would be raising either through IPO or whether in bringing in private equity investments across group entities? So at this point, Thomas, we haven't set a target for that because we want to do what's right for each entity because we've got a number of entities where the underlying value is very strong. And uh, we are looking at each one individually without having a target that we need to hit for it. So as that happens, we will continue that forward. For us, the capital requirement from an IPO or from a private equity is not as essential. It is more about unlocking value and creating value for our shareholders. And it's about a private equity who can come in and help us grow that business faster. So we're not bringing them in for capital because our cash generation should be far higher than the 17,000 crores we've talked about. Um, and we will look at rewarding our investors in various ways with that cash generation as well. So we will look for more growth opportunities uh, as we go forward. But for now, I would just say that our cash generation is going to be very strong, which will cover the all the investments we have to make. And we will look for means to unlock value. We will do that in a manner that is the best suited for creating the most value in each entity. But do you get tempted with the kind of run that you're seeing on IPOs, whether it is uh, getting private equity investment by startups, right? Uh, and as you mentioned, you have a good portfolio already sitting out there, which has already created a good value. Uh, do you get tempted to start unlocking right away or you, you want to play, play the patient game here? See, for us, it's important to build businesses for the long term and ensure that they're sustainable businesses that are built for the long term as well. So it's important to go out for an IPO at the right time where the company is ready for it and can continue that sustained performance. Right. So on the on the digital side, you mentioned uh, insurance as one of the areas. Uh, uh, last time we spoke, you had also mentioned about healthcare. Uh, uh, how close are you to getting into some of these new areas as far as digital is concerned? So in insurance, we have uh, Mahindra Insurance Brokerage, uh, which is a fairly large company in the brokerage space, uh, which also has a platform uh, as a marketplace today. So that's one that's in place already, which we need to scale up faster. And uh, we are looking at uh, a digital-led insurance company uh, where 
we may set it up on our own or with a partner. That's something that we're still working with at this point in time. Healthcare is a little further away uh, because we need to find the right concept. There are a number of things happening in healthcare right now, but it has to be truly differentiated, something where the consumer would say, that's what I really want. Uh, so it will be tech enabled again with, uh, with obviously a significant focus on uh, digital as well as the ability to uh, have data in, in a way that makes sense for the consumer. Uh, so a little more work to be done on the healthcare side. So therefore, at this stage, I would say the earlier platforms are around uh, financial services. I didn't talk about the digital finance company we set up earlier. Uh, which is already in place now. Our team is there. They're setting up uh, a strong business for personal loans, consumer deliverables, etc. Uh, the next one will be around SME financing. Agritech will be soon after that or in parallel. Um, insurance tech comes after that and then health will come after that. But how do you compete in each of these areas? I mean, it's already crowded market. You have probably 10 startups already uh, offering a whole host of services, whether it is insurance, whether it is SME finance. So how does a, a legacy, dare I say, brick and mortar Mahindra group compete with a more, you know, fast, nimble, nimble, agile startup ecosystem? So on that, uh, Thomas, first, if you look at SMEs, as I mentioned earlier, today we're purchasing 30,000 crores every year. For us to convert that to a platform is much easier uh, if we look at agri-tech, we are working closely with a very large number of farmers, with millions of farmers today, uh, on a wide range of technologies that we're working with them on. So can we have an app that is used by them on a very regular basis. So these are not startups. These are scale-ups. Uh, they are starting from a base which is far greater than what any startup would have, or, or even after a few years, what any startup would have. The key, as you said, is how do we give it the entrepreneurial freedom to run? And that's the reason why we are calling it separate as new age digital platforms. We will not control them. We will allow the entrepreneurs to run them and run them independently because that agility, that speed, the ability to pivot where required, all of those things are going to be very essential for them. So we will give it all the ammunition. We will say, here, this is a tremendous amount of ammunition. Go take this, run with this now, and now scale up. Right. So, um, Anish had interviewed uh, Anand Mahindra at, when he received the Asia Business Leader Award in Hong Kong, a CNBC Award in Hong Kong for uh, uh, for being one of the best Asian business leaders. So, in an interview post that which I've shared with Varsha to give to you, uh, he talked about an Indian template for an MNC. Uh, so, given the compelling forces the world around, uh, how much of an MNC, global MNC, do you want to be? Well, you so already are present in so many countries. We are a global company today. We are present in 100 companies. Uh, a large percentage of our revenue comes from global or from different countries around the world. Uh, so we are there already. Uh, and we will continue to look at global opportunities because technology is a key area of focus. And in a variety of industries that we are in, Global technology will be a key factor for us. Uh, we will look at alliances. We will look at partnerships with global companies and continue to be a leader because we cannot be a leader just in India. We have to be a leader on the global stage. Right. Uh, Thomas, you have 
Yeah, Anish, uh, I want to uh, get a, some more insights into your the, the the NBFC Mahindra Finance space. That's also a <clears throat> sort of a sorry <clears throat> uh, exciting space with fintech coming in, and you know a lot of new players are coming in into the NBFC space. Uh, you spoke about uh, the digital side of it. How are you seeing the traditional NBFC space uh, going for you? How do you plan to scale it up? We are seeing companies like. You know, Piramal, for example, acquiring DHFL. Uh, we know that Sray uh, is in the in the in the insolvency co uh, court right now. Uh, do you see an opportunity there acquiring some of these stressed NBFCs which come through the IBC? We want to focus on our strengths, so it's unlikely that we're going to acquire any of the stressed NBFCs. Uh, the strength of Mahindra Finance has been the rural consumer and the semi-rural consumer. Uh, if you look back at data over the last 20 years, Mahindra Finance has always shown high NPAs in every period of economic stress. But the credit losses have always been very low. And if you were to look at the net margin that Mahindra Finance has earned versus its competitors, it has been consistently higher. The issue has been with the volatility. And that's what we're looking at addressing now. Uh, potentially by cutting back on some segments, by focusing more on the rural and semi-rural affluent, because we've got a very strong brand in that space, uh, and potentially by creating some level of provisioning where we take care of uh, any potential expected defaults that come in well in advance, which it has happened today already, but we just need to look at, back at it and say, is there anything different we need to do there? So as we look at all of those factors coming in, it's really about the minor finance model, which is not fully understood at this point in time. I think there's a strength there that uh, has generated profits for a very long time, and we feel can do that going forward. So we need to build on that strength further. The second aspect there is uh, a few new areas, because rural housing finance is one that will go to an IPO soon. Uh, the second is leasing. Uh, leasing is a huge opportunity. We've set up a leasing business now that operates in rural and urban areas and uh, that's something that i feel will take off the third is around the digital finance company that we've set up as well uh, which is going to set up uh, a set of products and processes uh, which will make life much easier for the consumer and therefore will allow them to come in and and uh, use the set of products in a much uh, simpler manner so You've got a number of different growth drivers for Mahindra Finance today, uh, and that will position it very well. So we would not look at stressed acquisitions just to build scale. We would look more at taking our strengths and growing faster in those areas. So given that, you know, RBI is also uh, trying to bring, as far as regulations are concerned, the gap between a traditional bank and NBFC is uh, reducing day by day. I mean, every time they're tweaking the norms and making strict uh, stricter norms for NBFC. Yes. So do you see any merits in becoming a bank at the end of the day? Because, you know, if you are targeting the retail end consumer for different types of products, uh, why not just become a Mahindra bank? So we have always maintained that if RBI regulations change and allow us to become a bank, uh, that is something that we would look at very closely. Um, the tighter regulations are in fact welcome because we've always maintained a very high level of governance. Uh, we have always maintained a very conservative approach 
to all our provisioning uh, and a very high level of focus on the consumer. So these are the things that RBI is looking for. They're looking for governance, they're looking for ensure that you're protected from a provisioning standpoint, you're adequately capitalized. Uh, all of those things are met in Mahindra Finance today. Uh, so in many ways, it's good that you have tighter provisions around it. It builds a stronger financial services industry uh, and in a sense builds a level playing field as well. How, how bullish are you about uh, forays into the defense sector? Because much of it is dependent on government rolling out, rolling it out faster and faster. So defense will always be based on how the government takes it forward. Um, we are again very well positioned there because of our manufacturing prowess, uh, as well as the comfort that a lot of global majors have with us from a governance standpoint. And therefore, we've been able to attract uh, a large number of global folks who want to do more with us. Uh, but the pace will depend on uh, government spending on defense over the next few years. Right. Also, going forward, would you be cautious about entering into any joint ventures, given the fact that some of the prominent joint ventures, Mahindra and Mahindra, has not been successful in actually uh, running them through. I mean, finally, they have to exit those ventures. So would we be cautious in entering into any JVs in the future? We will continue to look at JVs. And I just want to talk about some of our history in that. Every JV is with a specific purpose and an objective. Uh, typically, a JV is not forever. A JV should dissolve once that objective is met for both partners. So if we look back at our history, our JV with Ford 20 years ago with Renault, uh, both partners met their objectives in, in those cases. And in fact, we came back on the table to discuss something else with Ford, where as we realized as we spent more time that the objectives were different. And if the objectives are different, then it does not make sense to get into the JV at that point in time. And, and which is why both of us decided that let's not get into it again. Uh, but it is a vehicle where uh, it helps us uh, create more value. And as long as the objectives are similar, as long as uh, it's clearly defined as to what a potential timeline is, is it 20 years, is it 10 years, in what time frame do you want to achieve the objective? That's what a JV is for. So we will continue to look at more JVs, uh, both globally and domestically. Right. Uh, Thomas, do you have any more questions or shall I switch tracks now? No, just maybe, uh, Anish, yeah. your th thoughts on, uh, you know, the overall economic situation that we are in. Uh, do you think the worst is behind us, given that the, given that the pandemic is on its way down and uh, recovery is happening across both supply and demand. Some of the uh, issues that we talked about earlier seems to be on its way out. So, where do you where do you see uh, you know on the on the macro as aspects of uh, how it will impact the business? The worst is behind us, but there is a factor that we cannot ignore, which is that COVID is not completely out as yet. Uh, in India, thankfully, we are in a much better position right now. Uh, but as we look at Germany, as we look at Austria, as we look at cases ticking up in the US again and a few other countries around the world, there is a cause for concern and we cannot be complacent. So we have to be prepared for anything else that comes in. 
so while I continue to be hopeful and optimistic that uh, we will not see that happening uh, in India and that in the rest of the world, things will start stabilizing again, uh, that's a factor we have to look out. But if it does not come back, then yes, clearly the worst is behind us. We're seeing that across multiple industries today. Uh, We're seeing a strong uptick. At the same time, supply chain challenges have eased. They're not fully gone as yet, but they have eased considerably. Uh, and that is driven by the fact that the COVID-related disruptions have gone. Um, and that's what we would hope for going forward as well. How do you see the impact of commodity price and general inflation impacting uh, pricing and therefore the demand? Commodity prices have gone up significantly. And uh, that's one where uh, we are at a high in that cycle. Now, whether this is the absolute high point or whether it was slightly higher, your guess is as good as mine, as these cycles will run their own course. But we've seen this cyclicality over years and decades. So it will come down. Uh, question is how soon? Inflation is here today. And inflation will take longer to come down. Inflation typically is not a transitionary phenomenon. Uh, so that's something that we will have to manage very carefully. And I know the central bank is, uh, central banks around the world are looking at this very closely and, and so is the RBI. Uh, but that's one area that if the central banks can manage well, I think we will be on a soft landing and can move forward very quickly. So do you see the global chip shortage easing, which will help automobile makers? It has eased already because there were two factors driving the chip shortages. One was a COVID-related disruptions. And you would have seen a recent report by Morgan Stanley on the Malaysian plant coming back up, and that has caused significant uh, easing of the problems because that plant was supplying semiconductors to a lot of auto component makers around the world uh, and subsequently to automakers. Uh, so that has helped. And that is largely behind us at this point, unless COVID hits again. The second factor is demand versus supply. Demand for products that have semiconductors has gone up again tremendously around the world. So we do see some challenges on that front, but that's a much smaller challenge as compared to the COVID-related disruption. Right. Though the China factor overhang is quite large because COVID is again rampaging there. So let's talk again about a shortage. So that sounds scary. That's right. The China factor also is there. So you're right, it's not just Germany, Austria, and some uptake in the US. China's on that list also. Uh, so those are things that we have to be cautious for because if that does result in, uh, again, severe shortages, closures, et cetera, that will have an impact. Right, right. Okay. Uh, so switching tracks again. Uh, so where does Anisha get his ideas, inspirations from? I mean, do you, is it from talking to people or is it from reading a lot or the conferences or where do you get your inspirations from? It is from people. And that's where I get energy from as well, because uh, I've always believed that it's teams that really cause success. And uh, interacting with various people, having an open environment where there's less of a hierarchy, uh, seeking ideas from various sources, uh, I've always found that to be very useful. Right. And who who had the most influences, influence in your life? I mean, who are your mentors? Uh, so many of them over time. Uh, I, I would start with uh, uh, my parents on that list first, uh, because both of them have been very successful in what they have done. And 
if you were to look at uh, my mother's example, uh, you have a woman entrepreneur uh, who started her business in the late 60s or the early 70s and uh, had to really set up that business in a world that was very different from what it is today. Uh, so that uh, was very inspiring from my standpoint. Uh, my wife has been a huge uh, source of both inspiration as well as guidance over time. Um, and with regard to mentors professionally, uh, Anand Mahindra would be absolutely at the very top of that list. Uh, just a remarkable person and someone who's always found a way to get the best out of everyone around him. Uh, and that uh, is something that uh, I've really learned a lot from. Um, and uh, many other mentors over time as well, many of my uh, bosses over time have been very strong mentors and folks outside. Right. So how do you unwind? I mean, what what does it do that you do beyond business? So I love spending time with family. Uh, my boys are a bit older now. They are uh, 19 and or rather 20 and 17. And uh, over the years, I used to always spend weekends with family, uh, play cricket with the boys, play football, American football at times, soccer at times, uh, do a variety of things with them, reading, traveling, um, and uh, taking some time to just play sports wherever I can. So that that's really the set of stuff. So you're not an avid weekend golfer? Golf, I have never gotten into because the choice was golf or family on weekends over the years. And uh, their family always came first. So I did start golf when my boys started getting older and they started going to the course as well. So I'd go with them uh, and they suddenly got better than me. Uh, in right. uh, so I do golf, but uh, very occasionally. Right. And what's your favorite sport to, to view uh, or to play? My favorite sport, uh, actually there are two. One is cricket, which has to be the case having grown up in Mumbai. Uh, but second is American football. And uh, that's something that I picked up obviously in the US. Uh, and uh, it's a very strategic sport. It's a sport also where teamwork is so essential. Uh, any single player, however good they are, are not going to make that difference. You have to work as a team. Right. It's supposed so, to be a very physical, physical good game, right? I mean, so uh, you you played what as a quarterback or? It is a physical game, and I have not played American football. I have been an avid watcher of American football. Uh, you need a very different size and and uh, uh, size for American football. It, I, ideally, 200 pounds and more or 300 pounds is probably the right size for it. Uh, so it, it, it's a very different game. But it's one which uh, is just replete with uh, strategy as well as team. Right. So it's typically in, in happier times, which will maybe pre-COVID, we could have probably met at some restaurant in Bombay and over a meal and had this conversation. So, uh, if we were to meet, what would have been your favorite cuisine? So, one of my favorites actually is vada pav, which you know would not have been in a restaurant, but uh, uh, on the street side. Uh, but uh, favorite cuisine uh, is South Indian, uh, by far. Uh, and then there are others as well, but uh, by far it's South Indian. Right. So, which restaurant would we have headed to in Bombay? Uh, Swami. We, we uh, are lucky to have had uh, Mutsuswami restaurant in our building complex in Bombay. It sort of went away for some time. It's coming back again next month. Uh, 
so that has been the favorite restaurant. But again, there's one outlet in Matunga which uh, has been very good for South Indian. So, so that would be my favorite. Uh, again, not very fancy, but uh, I, I love South Indian food. Oh, excellent. Right. You're talking to two quintessential South Indians also. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, um, so what is your reading very eclectic? I mean, do you read business books or fiction or or books on leadership or management or? No, I my reading is usually for downtime. So I love P.G. Woodhouse. It's things wow. that uh, you know are just take me away from uh, the routine of every day and into a different world altogether. Yeah, that's. I think India is one of the largest, still one of the largest PG orders reading public. Yes, absolutely. Right. Okay, just one last question before Thomas, do you have anything else? Or? It's just one last. You can ask you, then I'll finish it. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so IMA has produced yet another CEO. So, it's literally a school for CEOs. Uh, so, looking back on your two years at IMA, whether whether they're the most productive and informative years that you carried on to corporate life? So they were awesome years because it was great from a learning standpoint, um, both in the classroom as well as with peers outside the classroom. Um, the environment is one as well that is difficult to describe, but it really gives a lot of confidence. It gives you the ability to think and say, yes, there are various things I can do coming out of here. So I think it's a combination of learning. It's a combination of the peer group, the confidence that you get from it. Uh, that's what really makes it unique. Right. Right. So Anish, just to uh, finish off and bring it all together, uh, you are at the beginning of a uh, stint. Uh, you made, you've given us your uh, broad roadmap for the next two to three years. Uh, you are 51, I think. Uh, 50, 50, 50. Yeah. So you have still a long way to go in your career. Uh, if you were to have this conversation at the end of your career, what is it that you would like to have achieved by then? So what I would like to have achieved is to be able to state confidently that as Mahindra Group, we have lived our purpose. That's one thing we didn't spend a lot of time talking today, but that's the most important. Purpose. Um, that's who we've been. The second thing I'd love to say is that uh, we've had a very strong set of leaders uh, who've done very well, and uh, they have uh, been the best who they could have been. And it's a school for leadership. Uh, so we would want to look at the Mahindra Group as a place where people would look at when they look at the best leaders around. The third is what I'd like to say is uh, we've enhanced women empowerment and diversity across India. Uh, starting with the group and going beyond and taking a number of programs, whether it's an education of the girl child, whether it is killing for women, creating jobs for women. Uh, that's something I think is very important in India today and something we want to leave behind. Uh, and uh, while I say it last, it is equally important as all of the others, is that we would have rewarded our investors in a very significant way over that time period. So it is living a purpose and rewarding our investors and doing both at the same time. All right, so we wish you all the best for all that you want to achieve. And thanks for this conversation. It's been very insightful. Thank you, Anish. Yeah. Hope to see you again in Bombay. Yeah. Better times. Thank you. I look forward to meeting in person.
If you like what you heard, share the link, check out our site thehindubusinessline.com and watch our videos on youtube.com backslash thehindubusinessline. That is youtube.com backslash thehindubusinessline. Thank you for tuning in. You'll hear more from us next time.